Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Aubrey, a producer on the show. And I'm Shannon Reagan, fellow producer on Needlestack. And welcome to season two. We Yay, made it. <laughs> we made it, guys. <laughs> uh, we have a very exciting lineup of guests and topics for the new season. We're going to have Matt and Jeff back in the recording studio to walk you through some subjects like the deep deep, deep dark web and all the aspects of amateur OSINT. But first, we wanted to take a look back at our first season, our inaugural season, our newborn season, uh, and look at some of our favorite moments, uh, moments that you might have missed, even if you are a regular listener. Also, if this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome. We're happy to have you. Uh, and this is a good way to catch up on what type of topics we cover in our episodes and the fantastic guest roster uh, that you can come to expect from Needlestack. So without further ado, this is the best of our inaugural season of Needlestack. So thinking back to all the great guests we had on the first season, what kind of moments stand out to you, Shannon? So many. What, what a charming year. Um, I think obviously the biggest one that we were downright shocked uh, to uh, have on our show and that he was just so easy to work with and uh, a delight to talk to was the host of Darknet Diaries, Jack Recider. Very, very interesting guy. Um, obviously, he is obsessed with the Darknet and the stories that come out of it. Uh, his episode was some of those stories and a lot about his just process of, of you know, kind of reaching out to people on the Darknet, um, either that live there and breathe there, or the people that are using it as a resource as some of our uh, listeners might be. So yeah, Jack was a fascinating guest. I think my favorite moment and most memorable moment from his episode was uh, him telling a story of what people will do for a free burrito. Um, so yeah, I think we have the clip of that. And that's all the setup I'm going to do. I won't spoil the free burrito. I always think it's interesting that people go through a lot of steps just to get like a free burrito <laughs> or free pizza. Right. So there's like all these, uh, there's all these accounts for sale and stuff. You know, you can get a Netflix account, you can get a Chipotle account, you can get um, a Hilton honors account and say, yeah, I'll buy that from you for a couple bucks. And then that's tied to somebody's actual Chipotle account. Right. So you pop it into your phone and now you can order a burrito and get it sent to you or whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is always, 
interesting to me just to see these little these little things that people are going for out there. But I mean, that can scale up, right? You can get that Hilton's honors account and try to get a uh, free stay at a Hilton because you're using someone else's account to get into that room and stuff. But that's getting more risky now. And that's surprising me too. Like you would actually go and stay in a, in a, like it's one thing getting a burrito delivered to your neighbor's house and then going and standing there and waiting and say, yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing it. But it's another thing actually going to use, uh, you know, a, a fake uh, fraudulent hotel account and actually stay there the night. That's just causing something bad. Something bad is going to happen from that. Yeah. So this is fascinating to me too, because I think it's something I wouldn't have realized and relates to something that Jack says earlier in that episode, which is you'd be surprised how many hackers are just like bored middle schoolers. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, Yeah. And that it goes, it could actually be a gift to researchers of like all the other stupid things that they're willing to do on the internet that, you know, people might you know, this is talking about stolen credentials, but that, you know, sometimes even criminal masterminds take the path of least resistance. They reuse usernames, they reuse um, email addresses and other like identifying details across different platforms. Um, And so if you start to recognize those things, uh, it can aid, you know, future investigations or kind of crack, crack the case and give you better pivot points. And criminal activity aside, I'm always like, what is the over under on this? Like, how much did you pay for the stolen account for an $8 burrito that that's working out? (laughs) Actually, to be fair, I think it might be $8 for like 100 or or something. It it can't be really cheap on the dark web. Yeah, they're they're breaking even at least on the burrito, um, and especially on the hotel stay. I forgot that that was the the crux of the you know what people will do. And oh my god, like I would be, <laughs> it would be a sleepless night in a stolen hotel room. Um, okay. I would think the the authorities are on the other side of the door at all times. So yeah, obviously Jack has just a ton of great stories. Um, it was fun fun to chat with him, um, and you should obviously check out his show if you have not listened to Darknet Diaries already. Absolutely. So that's mine, my first one of many. Uh, what uh, what was one of your memorable moments? I think one of my favorite moments from last season is when Rob Fuller, who's a director of Red Teams and CTI, uh, started talking about how much he hates security awareness training. Yes. First, let's just go ahead and play that clip. Ooh, you were getting me very close to a soapbox. I don't know if you want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> Step on up, Rob. Uh, so, uh, I don't believe in in security awareness training. Um, I think that um, it is not it is not their job to be um, to be a security professional. It's like they're a forklift driver. They're you know a finance person. They're an HR representative. I I don't believe that users should know what a phishing email looks like. I don't. I think that we as security professionals need to do a better job at making it so that they can click whatever they want and it won't do anything. I I agree. And and my pet peeve, actually, um, I I think it's okay to give them training. Here's some bad things that can happen. But what really rubs me the wrong way is when you try to instruct users to don't click a suspicious link. I see that. I've seen that probably thousands of times in my career, that, that guidance given out by SOCs and security professionals, right? Tell your users, don't click a suspicious link. What the heck do they know? What looks suspicious? If it was suspicious, they probably wouldn't click it anyway. 
Right. So it's, it's really unhelpful advice that many times professionals give folks. Agreed. And as the non-practitioner here, I'll, I'll echo that, that it's not often super helpful to me. <laughs> and that, it's also really, that urge to click. Yeah, it's also really bad to fault them for it too. Like, oh, you click, you know, our test email or our test phishing, you know, security awareness thing. Now you have to go through four hours of, and you know what they're going to do with that, right? Like everyone, everyone on the planet, I think HR is the only people who actually go through their own training and maybe not even then, but everyone's going to click next, next, like us as a red team at a previous company, we found that you could just do a slash certificate at the end of our, or for our corporate training. And it would just finish the, the training for you. Like no, that's great. No one, no one does corporate training <laughs> in the way that it's intended. So why do we expect, you know, the, the security awareness one to be different? I love this moment because I think it's not every day that someone that's high up in security agrees with the users. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, is this really benefiting us slash anyone? Um, it's, it's a good point to bring up, obviously. Um, it's a good point to bring up, uh, you know, Rob was on as talking about um, building a good team and a good structure for uh, researchers that look into threat intelligence, uh, how to get them to do their best job, and just other things that um, SOX and uh, threat intelligence teams get distracted by. I think, you know, there's a silver bullet of or there's this perception of the silver bullet. It's like, if only the user could be perfect, which is never going to happen, which is why, you know, we have security training that it's a good idea and the spirit of it is good, but oh my God, it just, it just goes off the rails and, you know, with minimal returns so many times. Yeah. And his kind of whole argument is just have better security. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Don't, don't leave it up to chance. Don't leave it up to decision and behavior. Um, just, make it foolproof uh, in, in any way that you can. So I also, I'm, I'm triggered uh, on my next clip because I use the word silver bullet, uh, and which reminds me of the uh, Brecht Castell episode. So Brecht is a uh, investigative journalist, uh, I believe in Belgium, uh, and also an OSINT researcher. So he was on as part of our fact-checking sprint um, that talked to a lot of journalists um, and, you know, people countering disinformation and, and performing fact-checks and using OSINT to do that. Um, he was on to talk about the intersection of journalism and OSINT. And, you know, we always ask for tips and tricks. We ask for advice uh, and words of wisdom. And he was saying that, you know, essentially there there is no silver bullet. There is no, you know, great great tool all of the time other than the researcher's persistence and creativity. And I thought that was just really great advice. Um, not to say that there aren't good tools out there, but you will need to use any number of them and any combination of them for, you know, whatever your task at hand is. Uh, you'll just need to keep digging. And if you get stuck, you need to get creative in how to unstick yourself. So let's, let's let Breck say that. What are some of the tips or techniques that you want to leave with the audience today? Um, well, mostly people are asking for like specific new tools. Uh, 
Well, I, I'm going to disappoint you. I will not give you one of the latest tools. If you want to stay up to date, I would recommend the newsletter Week Week in OSINT. I think it's a great uh, weekly update of the newest uh, newest kit on the block. For me, OSINT is all about creativity and persistence. And creativity, I mean combining a lot of sources, combining a lot of techniques, looking for new ways to, to, to find something. Um, for example, now I'm fact-checking a video of Chinese troops entering Ukraine. That's the claim they make. And we see Chinese vehicles. If I can prove that this video is recorded somewhere else in Russia, in Vlad close to Vladivostok, that's good proof. If it's not possible, I can also look for another way to prove it. For example, if I find the number plates of these vehicles and I find other videos and I can geolocate these uh, videos. So that's, for example, a creative way of thinking, how can I fact check this? Another thing is persistence. Sometimes people are like, how can you find this? It's impossible. Well, yeah, it took me a few days, you know, like <laughs> it's it's hard work sometimes. If I cannot sleep, I, I, I get up and I, I, I search a few hours and sometimes then I find the location of a, of a video or a picture. So persistence and creativity are key and you just learn it by doing it, you know, like just start and you get better it day by day. I think I'll, I'll be a better OSINT investigator in one year from now than I'm today. That's, that's for sure. I love this moment because I think that you know, like in anything else in research, anybody who's trying to tell you an easy, quick solution, it's usually not going to work. Right, right. Yeah, there aren't there are no shortcuts in research, especially um, that I think one of the, you know, the really fun, quite frankly, thing to talk about with uh, all of these uh, people performing fact checks and, and countering disinformation and misinformation um, is that so much of how something is presented is, you know, the context around it is what gets manipulated or is, you know, what gets um, co-opted for, you know, the poster's benefit. You know, a video or an image might be, you know, the video itself isn't doctored, but the context in which it's posted is now serving a different purpose than, you know, from what it was originally captured for. Um, so I thought that was really interesting to just kind of, you know, Put on your put on your creative hat. Think about the the mindset of you know why someone would post this. Um, what are their motivations? Kind of looking into the profile as much as the content itself, um, and really just digging around and, and getting creative. Um, like all of the fact checkers on that sprint um, were were of that spirit, uh, and just had lots of good tips. I think for researchers, but also just as responsible like citizens of the internet. So I love talking to all of them. Yeah, that was a great series. Before we move on, I also just wanted to say Brecht has some great, uh, great Twitter game period, um, but also some great like OSINT tips uh, and really walks you through threads uh, on Twitter of how he performs fact checks uh, or different types of OSINT research and uh, just like a really nice play-by-play -play fashion. Um, so if you're looking for some how-tos or for instances, go check those out. He's just a great guy to follow. So yeah, so he's at Brett Castell on Twitter. Check it out. One of my other favorite guests this season, who I think I could just listen to talk. <laughs> forever. Uh, Pleasing voice. What a, well, what a fascinating person was uh, mm -hmm. the author and investigative journalist Eileen Ormsby, who joined us for our dark web series. And um, one of the best moments, I think, from her episode, the whole thing is great, was when she talked about why she just was pretty sure that she could call the bluff of a hitman. 
Yeah. Yeah. Reasonably confident. I would have to be absolutely. Um, but she's a, she's a gutsy lady for sure. And does some really fascinating uh, research on the dark web and very uh, up close and personal research on the dark web with the actors there. Yes, absolutely. And in this clip, um, she'll tell you why when you think about it, just a service for Hitman doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Critical thinking skills apply. So here's that clip. Well, other than the, the hitman wanting to kill me, but that was yes. okay because <laughs> because um, what what happened there was, you know, there's always been hitman sites on the dark web and I've always been 100% certain that they are fake. Uh, and there's a very basic reason for this. The only things that it's really um, viable to sell on the dark web are things that are easily transferable and things that have repeat custom. So hiring a hitman is not an easily transferable thing. It is a personal service. Someone has to go out and, and carry out the murder. And not only that, you're more likely than not only to want one hit, you know, that there's not many people that want hit after hit after hit. So it's not a repeat service thing. So once you've paid a hitman in cryptocurrency who you don't know, you don't know who this person is or where they are, what possible incentive do they have to carry out the hit? There is no incentive to do that. You're not going to come back and be a repeat customer like the drug buyers, um, you know. And so I was 100% certain that they were all fake. What a what a woman. What a story. <laughs> and I think, like, there, she, Eileen has been interviewed in, you know, lots of articles. She's written a ton of books. Um, I think in another article that, you know, she was saying that she actually was – going to meet up with this person that is based mafia and they were like yeah no i'm i'm, I'm full shit basically <laughs> and then she but continued when, to discuss with him like why he was doing what he was doing and yeah yeah such the uh the investigative spirit it's like we'll keep keep pressing keep finding out more it's great and oddly in a way these like purported hitmen committing fraud toward these people who like want to kill their wives or whatever it is they're after. Yeah. Like taking all their money is kind of in a way preventing them from doing it. It's like weirdly. <laughs> it's an odd public service. It's an odd yeah. way to uh, help your fellow, fellow womankind. <laughs> so I was listening recently to another episode with Michael James from Osent Curious. And he was talking about this, um, this need on the dark web, uh, especially on dark web marketplaces uh, where people are actually, buying things and, and giving up money, nobody trusts anybody there. Um, so you have to kind of tout your, uh, the quality of your service, your customer service, um, that you'll have like reviews. And it's just this like bizarro upside down uh, Yelp <laughs> of, of the world. Um, but again, there's, you know, that's all the more, um, you know, means that you can get information because these shops kind of have to be established um, there's a lot more information around them if they are heavily used. So it's kind of a, you don't want them to be heavily used, but there is more information for researchers to, to find out more. So what else do you have on your list of clips from last year? On my list of faves, needle stack favorites, um, friend of the show, AJ Nash. Uh, AJ was also on as part of our Sock CTI uh, series of episodes um, where we did like just keep coming back to the people like, you know, the how do you make uh, a conducive environment for researchers to 
do well. Um, so a lot of it focused on, you know, how to build the right team, how to hire for roles, um, how to uh, create the hierarchy of that team within the organization. AJ has a lot of uh, thoughts on this and has written articles on um, kind of reorganizing the reporting strategy uh, and, and executive alignment of all of this. It's very interesting. And I think he has a lot of good reasoning behind it. Um, so in this clip, I just wanted to play the gist of some of that. I think he breaks down really well from the, the individual level and then kind of getting into the team and process level uh, of how to build a good intelligence organization. This is for threat intelligence, but I think just applies more broadly as well. I warn people or I caution people against trying to find unicorns. Um, you might. I've worked with a couple. I've worked with a couple of folks who can go all the way from the far end of the dark web, you know, all the way through malware analysis and the technical analysis and open source and all source and, and write finished products that can go to the executives. They are so few and far between, though. Um, more often than not, you're going to end up with a mix. You know, we have organizations that are set up with, say, a collections organization versus an analysis and reporting organization. And then even with those, you may have subsets. Collections may have human intelligence versus technical intelligence. Human intelligence probably goes in the deep and dark web, maybe directly integrates or, or directly associates themselves with adversaries using sock puppets, uh, not to be confused with Matt's uh, issues with socks. But um, <laughs> you've got that, and then you've got the technical collection, right, bringing in the IOCs and, and all the technical components, right? Um, and then folks who can actually take those pieces and build the puzzle. Um, again, there are people who do both sides, but more often than not, your heavy technical folks, they're not a huge fan of writing in prose. I mean, most of them write, write bullets if they write anything. Most of them write code. Uh, but they'll write you some bullets, they'll throw it over, and they'll hear you do something with it. Uh, on the other side, you'll have the people who build the puzzles. Listen, give enough pieces to the right person. They can build the puzzle, tell the story, put it in prose, make sense of it, draw conclusions, apply analytic tradecraft, and then have enough technical knowledge to go back and talk to the technical expert and say, hey, can you double check this? Make sure I capture everything correctly. You know, did I get the data flow right? Do I understand what you gave me? Uh, so most organizations are su successful tend to work in that fashion where you don't try to have 20 people who can all do the same thing. Uh, you say, hey, let's get the people who are sp specialized and focused on things they do best. Um, you know, to me, the things that matter most really are aptitude and attitude. Um, you know, you do have to be able to work well together. I don't I, no brilliant jerks are absolutely useless to organizations. So, yeah, so he's, you know, he's saying, beware of the unicorn, beware of the, uh, brilliant jerk or, or genius jerk. I forget quite how he puts it. Um, brilliant jerk. Yes. Um, <laughs> jerk with a good memory, maybe. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, no matter what you're doing, this is going to be this is going to be done by humans. Um, that not everyone is going to have the absolutely perfect set of skills, uh, and how important in terms of intelligence that writing is. Uh, I think in other parts of this episode, he talks about how he uses um, former journalists, uh, especially as you know the industry of journalism is freeing up a lot of people. Uh, Intel organizations might want to pick them up to write intelligence products because it's one thing to collect the information, but you actually have to convey it in a way that is meaningful and useful to the people that need to act on it. So being able to communicate well is just something that really stood out in his episode and has appeared uh, in other spaces, especially the um, fact-checking episode as well. Having both those technical and you know slightly softer skills um, of good communication is is really key. Yeah. Yeah. I love this moment because I mean, for one, uh, when it comes to CTI, AJ Nash has had a ton of success, both in government and private sector. 
So if you're going to mm-hmm. listen to someone, he's a good one. Um, he's walked but, all the paths. <laughs> but also, I think this just applies generally to building a team. I mean, mm-hmm. being a culture fit and being someone that works well and not trying to like spread everyone thin over lots of different expertise. It's that can apply to any. Yeah. Yeah. Any industry, really. Don't want to set yourself up for failure. But speaking of journalists, (laughs) another great moment from last season was when we had Nina Lamparski of AFP and talking about running the fact-checking team in Africa. And Mm -hmm. uh, we asked her kind of how traditional journalists and some of these amateur OSINT researchers interact, which is something I think fascinating to me in particular because I came from journalism but it just, and I was surprised by her response that it was more positive actually than I was expecting. And she was like, yeah, yeah I appreciate these accounts. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like, at a surface level, it feels like, you know, shots fired or like that there's, there's some toe stepping going on, but I think in reality um, it's, yeah, it's much more collaborative than, than it seems. I remember when I was reading the uh, We Are Bellingcat book, which is also one of our episodes and was my favorite moment because I read the whole book from season one. Um, but Elliot Higgins was saying that, you know, it's really negligent of, of journalists to ignore uh, OSINT and the people doing this work and that specialize it uh, in it. And that you don't necessarily have to be good at both. You don't have to be a good journalist and a good OSINTer. Um, there are people that are good at one or the other and they can work together. Uh, and that's the reality of it. So I think all of the kind of op-ed, you know, comments on it seem a little more harsh than things really are on the ground. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and play that clip. And one of the major world topics right now, obviously, is the conflict in Ukraine. And we've seen a, a marked increase and, uh, and the attention given to amateur sleuths and researchers out there on the internet. Lots of really incredible information that, uh, we really haven't had that uh, level of visibility before in a conflict like this. So it's pretty interesting to see. I'm wondering, as a journalist, uh, what's your relationship or view of these amateur uh, or independent researchers? Uh, is there a place for them uh, in, in your work uh, or, or is there a different view on that? No, I think there's definitely a place for them. As you point out, I think a lot of um, amateur researchers, especially for the Ukraine conflict, for example, they are military hardware experts. They take an interest in it. Um, some of them are ex-army. Uh, others have an intelligence security and intelligence background. I mean, I work with that in the same way that I work with any source. I never take just one source for granted. I would not run anything that unless it's an AFP correspondent. Um, I think generally speaking, we definitely look at more than two or three sources. Um, but yeah, I guess the better ones end up having quite a good reputation. I certainly follow OSINT experts online. We had a lot of Ukraine disinformation Africa. There's a very strong, in some countries, a very strong anti-NATO sentiment. So they take a strong, and then pro-Putin sentiment as well. So um, we saw an astonishing amount of disinformation. Some of that definitely involved like images of um, weaponry and so on. And so then you have to kind of go and look um you know, you do look at what, what, what amateur researchers do. But as I said, I think it's just kind of you have to just follow your gut and make sure that, like, as we say, don't trust anyone. But if you have like two or three sources and they all kind of match up um, and you kind of can cross-reference it with your own reporters on the ground, then there's a pretty good chance. And with other experts, you know, like renowned experts, then there's a pretty good chance that it's true. So, yeah, so it's all part of a bigger ecosystem. I wouldn't just rely on one person, but I definitely think there's like 
it's great to have them for sure. Yeah, I like this too, because I mean, she's a journalist, you have to fact check things. She specifically works in fact checking. So she's like, I'm not just going to take at Joe Schmo OSINT account yeah. without a grain of salt. But what I think it's helpful for is tips, especially yeah. when some of the more traditional accounts or, you know, well-regarded places like Bellingcat, they can't cover everything. So right. you might have a bandwidth issue where only this random O-Center on Twitter has time to look into these images. But if you can back that up with either your mm -hmm. own research or a few other sources, then it's a great place to get tips for journalists who are also, you know, sort of time strapped often. Yeah. Yeah. So much of the, of the work is, is corroboration that, you know, that we keep coming back to this theme over and over and over again uh, with all of our guests that information is not intelligence. It's not just getting a bit of information. It's not just getting a lot of information. It's analyzing that and, you know, in connection with each other, um, do these things fit together? Does something stand out as the oddball? Um, but that it's not really that intelligence product until you can, you know, piece it together in a meaningful way. Before we wrap up, do you have one more moment you want to highlight from last season? I have 10 more, Aubrey. No, I have one more. I can stick to one more. But it is kind of like, I think these were two different moments uh, in the episode, but I think they uh, they go nicely together. So with the magic of editing, <laughs> I'll share. Um, so uh, this is from our episode with Michael James, uh, who we uh, came to through the OSINT Curious Project, which is a fabulous resource with a podcast of its own and a huge website of they have like these 10 minute tip videos. They have, you know, blogs and trainings and just lots and lots and lots of good information for anybody who is OSINT curious uh, or who is OSINT bona fide and OSINT professional. Um, Michael is obviously a super knowledgeable researcher, um, but he says that he even goes back to their 10 minute tips from time to time, just because you're not doing the same type of research every day. Um, and so I think that also goes to the crux of his advice in this clip that I want to play is that it's important to forget about silver bullets, forget about, you know, magic tools, uh, any tool could be right for the right mission. So keep the mission in mind, not the tool. Don't get distracted by the technology and remember your trade craft. So here's the clip from Michael. We really want to go through and open it up to more than just the traditional norms as well, right? Like everyone knows Google, you know, if you have a problem, you Google it and that that's fantastic. But a lot of stuff that you're leaving on the table by not checking Bing, by not checking Yandex, by not checking other geo specific search engines or social media search engines that are specific to a, a, a country or a region. Uh, there's a lot of in-depth information you can get from that. And so we're, we're there to go through and expand upon that. And then also maybe knock down some of the other things that uh, are just information gathering versus actual intelligence. You know, the, the thing with open source intelligence is that you gather the information, which is a large part of it, but you actually have to go through and consider and consult that information and make sure that it's actually tangible and it's answering a question for whatever your stakeholder, your client, or your mission set actually is. So yeah. it, it's very important to go through and lead with why is it important as opposed to what tool can I use? Because that's not OSINT. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. That's very true. And something I've said many times uh, on this podcast and in real life as well, 
huge difference between information and intelligence or data and intelligence, right? You have to apply that analytic rigor to get from information and data to a finished Intel project. So. And here's the second clip. Uh, can you give us an example or test, tell us a little bit about one of the uh, more successful investigations that you've conducted? Sure, I think so. Uh, so, um, you know, we we have um, a lot of of uh, scrapers in regards to paste bin type sites and things like that, however, where people are, are, are constantly advertising. One of the ones that we went to and we were uh, launching investigations from for the uh, National Childhood Protection Task Force was uh, trafficking. Um, there were a lot of ads out there for human trafficking and, uh, uh, you know, some of them are bogus and that's the reason why you look at them, right? You want to go through and vet for legitimacy in regards to other links you can go through and provide and make sure that if there is something to be found, that it's found and then disseminated to law enforcement or the appropriate um, legal organization, right? So when we start scraping these kind of platforms and they start leaving, um, identifying markers like WhatsApp numbers, um, Proton accounts for email, usernames where they post on several different sites or uh, even the different paste bins, um, we're able to go through and take that information and enumerate that in regards to anything you would do with classic OSINT trade work. Right. So username analysis, pivoting from social media site to social media site, backtracking in regards to historical views from the Wayback Machine. Um, the, the thing about dark web and deep web analysis is that it seems very abrupt and scary. But the, the thing that you have to understand, this is with any technology, as long as you're focused on your core tenants, uh, as long as you know what your tradecraft is and you had to pivot from one piece of information into another, that's all you're really doing. And the technology is just a means of delivery, right? So as long as you stick to your, your, your standard tradecraft and you're able to go through and take a username and run it through uh, what's my name app that Micah uh, Hoffman developed a long time ago. Um, if you take an email address and you're able to go through and put it through Epitos tool and you're able to go through and find out other platforms that that's been registered or the services that maybe they registered for that stuff, that's all going to go through and get you that much further into uh, defining what verified information you can get. Um, in that case that we were talking about with the trafficking, we were able to go through and link it to a LinkedIn profile that was actually selling themselves as immigration services when it really was a human trafficking situation and they were uh, maliciously advertising to people to go through and get out of these war-torn countries and bad situations and then literally enslaving them in regards to death that they didn't know they were doing all while having this uh, this shiny front on LinkedIn to go through and advertise and get endorsements from people and really kind of uh, make it a very bad situation for these people. So, yeah, there were uh, a couple instances in the show where uh, Michael, you know, walks through the uh, types of investigation and he does get into, you know, these are the tools that I used for this one. This is how I was able to pivot off of different information, um, but that really not, you know, coming at it from a tool first mindset, I think is what uh, he was really trying to get at. There was another uh, clip from that show. I could I could pull 10 clips from Michaels, to be fair. Um, that, you know, he talks about, you know, after he's going through one of these like case studies of his investigation, that, you know, there's all these, you know, different tools and different steps in the process. And then we uncovered this information, which led us to this, that, and the other, um, that he, he mentions, it's not a smoking gun all the time, but the more that you can layer in these artifacts, um, the better. And that the more you start to specialize in a certain like type of research, investigating certain 
types of, you know, adversaries or groups or for different industries or, you know, types of threats, et cetera. Um, you as a researcher will gain historical knowledge and you'll become more efficient and more savvy in terms of, uh, oh, I've seen that type of information before. Or literally, I've seen that username before. Um, and you'll be able to kind of move through your investigations uh, better and at a faster pace. Yeah, uh, that whole episode was just like chock full of great advice. He's such a knowledgeable guy and was like spouting off great information at this like Gilmore Girls rate that had me scrambling to take notes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but I love in that first clip, he gets into, you know, it feels like everyone uses Google. But if you look at the statistics, even like 9% or whatever it is of Bing users of overall internet users, if that's like four and a half billion, whatever the latest number is, that's not chump change. 9% of four yeah. and a half billion is a lot of people. And so I've taken classes on that just as far as like SEO, but from a researcher perspective as well, you should not discount other search engines. Yeah. Don't, don't hate on Bing. <laughs> or, or Yahoo, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. But he also gets into a little bit of trafficking um, and researching those really hard subjects, which actually leads yeah. me to our final clip from a great episode we did with Welton Chang, who Welton uh, <laughs> who founded an AI that tracks hate speech on alternative social media sites. And, you know, Welton talks about he's someone with, uh, he'll get into in this clip, but a military background, you know, he's not adverse to hard subjects, but even, mm -hmm. even so it can really get to you. And so if we have anybody in the audience, especially, um, you know, investigating CSAM, things like that. This is a great piece of advice from Welton. Self-care. Um, you should be cognizant of your own uh, mental state as you wade through some of this content, especially the more um, toxic stuff that's out there. And if any of your audience deals with things like child sexual abuse material, things that are happening on the dark web, um, it can be greatly affecting over time, you know, and I'm a, a father of two, um, you know, I've unfortunately had the experience of um, having gone overseas twice when I was in the army and at the IA, uh, did two tours in Iraq. Um, and I consider myself to be a fairly uh, mentally strong person, but even some of the content that we continue to observe, it, it can be um, affecting emotionally. So just having a an understanding of where your own mental state is at um, is super important. And then I think, you know, whether or not I can sleep well at night, you know, a big part of that is just to, for your audience to know that the techniques that they apply to some of their work can be turned back onto them. Um, you know, as we've gotten more popular as a company and as, as we've gotten more public about our activities uh, we've, we've seen, you know, threats come our way. And so we've taken countermeasures to eliminate our own data from places like data brokerages um, and try to uh, maintain a firewall between some of the, the company activities and our own personal lives, right? And Always great advice, you know, for investigators, especially if you're like really heads down, whether again, uh, whether that's CSAM or, you know, the war in Ukraine, if you're really flooded with terrible imagery and 
subject mm-hmm. matter, always take a minute. Yeah. You know, there are also, there are tools out there to um, kind of limit your exposure, especially to images um, as you search, if you're just kind of looking at the context around them, or you're sharing this information with people that are not prepared to see that type uh, of content, um, you can basically block, literally block it out, um, rather than try to do so in your mind after the fact. Um, I think Eileen said this too, was like, you, there are things that you can't unsee, uh, yeah. especially on the dark web. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, take care of yourself, um, and, and keep, uh, keep that in mind. Yeah. The blur tool is an important one. Yeah. And on that happy note. <laughs> yeah. Let's end, let's end <laughs> on a positive note with, you know, mental trauma. <laughs> There were, um, we could have picked a hundred more great moments from season one and you can catch up on all of those episodes on our website at authentic8.com slash needle sack. That's authentic with the number eight. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll be back discussing OSINT in all of its various forms. Here's to a great season two. Yay. Cheers. (laughs) 